The reading today is Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 6, verse 11. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Our God and Father, we do praise you uh, that you are a speaking God. We thank you that you have spoken clearly to us in your word in the scriptures. And we ask simply now that as we study this portion of the Bible together, you would help us all to listen and so be changed, changed to love you more and changed to be more like you. Yes, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me begin with a question. Question is this, is Jesus anti-religion? Is Jesus anti-religion? I wonder how you'd go about answering that question. Even in a room like this one, I guess that people, even those of us who are Christians, will intuitively answer it in different ways. 
Some of us might well answer it with a very clear no, and you might actually think that I'm being a bit silly to even ask the question. Jesus was a Jew, wasn't he? He went to the synagogue. He observed festivals like the Passover. And not only did he practice religion, he established a new one, quite a big one actually. He founded the church. He instituted a ritual meal. He insisted that people believe certain things, particularly certain things about him, and he called people to worship. And so to the question, is Jesus anti-religion, you might reasonably answer, of course he wasn't. And yet, whilst all of that's true, I'm also fairly confident that a number of us, when I ask that question, will be thinking, yes, Jesus was anti-religion. Why might you be thinking that? Well, because, as it's often said, Jesus came to exchange religion for a relationship, a relationship with the living God. And yes, of course, there are some similarities between Christianity and other religions, but the relationship that Jesus offers is so very different than any other religion in the world. And not only that, just think about Jesus who had his biggest disputes with during his own ministry. Who does Jesus clash with more than anyone else? Religious people. Who ultimately had Jesus crucified? Religious people. So Jesus is anti-religion, isn't he? Well, what we're going to see this morning is that the answer is, it depends. There's a big cop-out for you, isn't it? I promise I'm not just being diplomatic. I'm not just sitting on the fence. It really does depend. It depends on what you mean by religion. If by religion you mean worshipping and serving and proclaiming and believing and obeying God, then no, Jesus was not anti-that. That's exactly what he called his followers to do. And yet there is something else, something that looks an awful lot like religion, something that often attaches itself to religion that Jesus did take issue with in a big way. Now, we are continuing our series in Luke's Gospel this morning. We've been thinking in recent weeks about Jesus' manifesto, what it was that Jesus came to do. He came, we read in chapter 4, to proclaim good news, good news about forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, he said, that people's rebellion against their God, their, their rejection of his rule over their lives, could be forgiven. It was wonderful news. It's joyful news. And last week, we saw that that news is for a particular group of people. Robin read the verse at the beginning of our time together this morning. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to bring healing, restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation for people who really need it. And yet, there's a wrinkle. I wonder if you noticed it. There are other people, people whom he calls righteous, who he didn't come for. 
And it just so happens that in the three exchanges that immediately follow what Jesus says in Luke 5.31, the three exchanges we're going to be thinking about this morning, Jesus clashes with religious people, a group of people called the Pharisees. And that's why it's worth asking ourselves the question, is Jesus anti-religion? Because all of that stuff taken together, the fact that Jesus did not come for the righteous and he immediately clashes with religious people, might make us think that Jesus is anti-religion. He didn't come, we might think, for religious people. He came for sinners. I knew it, Jesus is anti-religion. And yet that isn't quite the point. We're going to see we need to be more precise than that. Because yes, the culprits are religious in Luke 5 and 6. And yet the kind of heart set, the kind of mindset that Jesus is addressing that characterizes these righteous people who he came for, well, it isn't exclusive to religious people. It's particularly ugly in religious people, but it isn't exclusive to them. Ultimately, it's a heart set, a mindset that refuses to acknowledge our spiritual need, that thinks we have the resources to save ourselves, or thinks we don't need saving at all, thank you very much, and therefore thinks we don't need a spiritual doctor. And Jesus says, no, no, That is completely incompatible with following me. That's where we're going to be heading this morning. Let's get into Luke chapters 5 and 6 in a bit more detail. There is, as has been said, a sermon outline on the back of the service sheet that you should have had on your seat as you arrived. And you'll see on that our first heading this morning, self-righteous, human-centered religion is incompatible with following Jesus. Now, it's fair to say there's quite a lot going on in our passage this morning. There are three exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, and each of them seems to address different issues of religious practice, whether Christians should fast or not, for example, whether we should observe the Sabbath or not, and if so, how. And yet I want to say this morning that the practices themselves aren't actually the main point. Together, they illustrate a much bigger principle. And the reason I think that is because right in the middle of these three exchanges, Jesus drops in a series of parables. I wonder if you noticed them. Just look down at verse 36 to 39. They almost seem shoehorned in to the passage, don't they? The way that this section works is that those parables function to communicate a big principle. And the three exchanges then illustrate that principle. That's how I think the whole thing's structured. So what do the parables say? Let's look at them. Verse 36 of chapter 5. Jesus told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now imagine just for a moment buying a brand new suit. Guess for many of us, if you've been working at home during COVID, you might not remember what one of those is anymore because you've been able to work in your pyjamas for the past 15 months. Suspend that thought for a second. Imagine you have reason to buy a new suit. And not long after you've bought it, disaster strikes. You realize that your favorite pair of pyjama bottoms has a hole in the knee. But you've got a really good idea. 
Because sitting there in your cupboard, sitting there in your wardrobe, is that brand new suit. There's loads of material in that. So you take your pair of scissors and you cut a great big patch out the knee and you stick it smack bang in the hole of your jammy, your jammy trousers. Problem solved. Except it isn't, is it? And in fact, you've just made a new one. Both pairs of trousers are now ruined. See, the problem is that they just aren't compatible with each other. You can't patch the old thing with that new thing. That's the gist of the first parable. And he makes a similar point next, a parable about wine and wineskins, verses 37 and 38. Now, in the first century world, a wineskin was basically the equivalent of, of like Tupperware or, or like a, a refillable bottle or a thermos flask. It was, it was an animal hide that was treated and it was sewn up into like a bag that you could carry wine around in. And over time, that wineskin would become brittle, weakened, because it was just made of animal hide. And the problem that caused was that new wine, wine that had just been made, would still have some expanding to do, some fermenting to do. And when that expanding wine went into an inflexible, brittle wineskin, well, the old wineskin would burst. And so we have it. A new thing that can't be attached to an old thing, and a new thing that can't be poured into an old thing. What Jesus is saying is that what he has come to do, what we've just seen, his big manifesto is, his rescue of sinful people, is that new thing. And yet what he says here in these three exchanges in chapters 5 and 6 is that that new thing, that forgiveness, that liberty, that freedom is just not compatible with the old thing that the Pharisees are clinging to. Let me say that again. What Jesus has come to do is not compatible with the old thing that the Pharisees are clinging to. One just can't be patched onto the other. It can't be poured into the other. They just don't mix. But all of which still begs that question. What is that old thing? What is it that the Pharisees are clinging to? As I mentioned a few minutes ago, we need to be more specific than just thinking of it as religion in general. I've tried to have a go at articulating it in our heading. It's anti-self-righteous, human-centered religion. It really rolls off the tongue, that one, doesn't it? Anti-self-righteous, human-centered religion. Where am I getting that from? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're driving along the M8. Speed limit's 70 miles an hour. Road conditions are clear. Traffic's flowing freely, and you're doing bang on 70. And in your rearview mirror, you see the blues and twos. A police car pulls you over to the side of the road, and the kindly officer approaches your window, and he hands you a ticket for speeding. But officer, I was, I was driving at 70. That's, that's the limit. Ah, yes, I know you were, but I always drive at 60 miles an hour in a 70 zone, just to be safe. And to be honest, I think you should really have been doing the same if you were being careful. So I think you'll agree, it probably warrants the ticket. I think you probably wouldn't agree, as a matter of fact. It's deeply unfair, isn't it? What the officer's done is turned his sense of what might be safe, what might be reasonable, that sense that he's kind of decided arbitrarily, and he's turned it into a benchmark. 
a benchmark of what's right and wrong. And he's judging everyone else by that benchmark. And you see, that's just what the Pharisees are doing in each of these exchanges. See, when it came to fasting, nothing in the law obligated a Jew to fast more than once a year. They might choose to, of course. There was no law that meant they had to, though. And yet notice chapter 5, verse 33. Their starting point is that Jesus and his disciples ought to be doing it more often if they're to keep up with other holy men. Or again, with the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God commanded his people to keep the Sabbath day holy by doing no work on it. But it wasn't always crystal clear exactly what constituted work. And in fact, in the two challenges the Pharisees make of Jesus in Luke 6, that's exactly the case. It isn't entirely clear whether picking grain or healing someone is definitely work. But the Pharisees seem to think that it is. In fact, they're sure that it is. Chapter 6, verse 2. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, say the Pharisees? No question about it in their minds. See what's going on. The Pharisees are treating compliance not with the law, but with their own kind of souped-up version of the law as a benchmark of what was spiritually right. And of course, not only does that mean they can point out when other people are doing things wrong, like Jesus in this instance, it means that they can sure, be sure that they are doing what's right. Their religion is quite literally self-righteous makes them righteous in their own eyes. That's a problem, says Jesus. That's the problem. And it's a problem because it blinds them to their need. It blinds them to the provision God has made for that need. And Jesus explains that in three different ways, one in each of the little exchanges. Let's just work through each of those in turn. Luke, firstly, chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. It misreads the occasion the bridegroom is here. Now, when I was a student, I used to work as a waiter in the function suite of quite a posh restaurant during my summer holidays. And my guess is that over four summers, I probably worked at somewhere between two and 300 weddings overall. Probably a little bit more than that, actually. And I saw lots of, lots of pretty amazing weddings. Some really lovely ones. Family members flying in from the other side of the world to surprise the bride by being there on her big day. And some less lovely family bust-ups, an ex-partner turning up, jilted ex-partner, should say, to remonstrate at the reception. That was a bit awkward. A groom taking a tumble down a flight of stairs and needing to be taken away by an ambulance halfway through the afternoon. And one wedding where inexplicably the best man seemed completely unaware that he was meant to give a speech until the microphone was put into his hand. Now, among all of that, the good the bad and the downright awkward, there was something that I never saw. The guests arrive, take their seats at the table, and the chat is interrupted with an announcement from the MC. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, the bride and groom, the new Mr. and Mrs. What do you call it, are delighted to, that you've been able to join them for this special day, and they've asked that you would join them by marking the special day, joining them in an evening of quiet contemplation and fasting. Can't imagine that being a particularly popular move, can you? 
In fact, some of the weddings I've just described, I think it would end up in all-out rioting. And yet that's exactly the kind of situation Jesus asks the Pharisees to imagine in verses 33 to 35. Why are your followers feasting and not fasting, they ask? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is a time of rejoicing, says Jesus. You've completely misread the occasion. This is like a wedding, not a time of fasting. And it's important to know that Jesus isn't just plucking the image of a bridegroom out of thin air. In the Old Testament, it was chock full of references to God's plan to rescue his people, to restore his broken world, his sinful people back to himself. And one common picture of how you'd go about doing that was of him turning up as a bridegroom, coming to marry a bride, his people. Isaiah 62, he says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's a theme repeated in the Psalms, Song of Songs, in Hosea, it's all over the place. Jesus is picking that image up and applying it to himself. Notice he isn't saying that fasting would be wrong in itself. That isn't the issue. He's saying that by fasting, they'd be misreading the occasion, missing what he'd come to do. I'm the long-awaited bridegroom. I've come to restore my people. Don't miss the occasion, says Jesus. That's the first angle on what they're missing in their pursuit of self-righteousness. They're misreading the occasion. The bridegroom's here. We see the second in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. This time, the exchange is about whether Jesus' disciples were breaking the law of Moses. And this time, it's by plucking some grain, rubbing it in their hands, and eating it, and doing all of that on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, verse 2, tell Jesus that what he's doing is unlawful, and essentially ask him to explain himself. And just notice how Jesus answers. He doesn't really answer at all. He doesn't go toe-to-toe about whether it really qualifies as work or not. No, instead he refers them to an episode in the life of King David. The situation he mentions comes from 1 Samuel 21, where King David was on the run from Saul. David and his men were hungry, and so a priest allowed them to eat, to eat sacred bread, bread that was set aside for God's purposes. Only the priests were meant to eat it, and here David ate it. But what has all of that got to do with what Jesus is doing? It's not really an answer to the question at all, is it? Well, he isn't using it to answer the question, at least not primarily. He's using it as an identity claim. Because David wasn't just any old person when he was allowed to break the law, was he? David was God's king. And Jesus is drawing a parallel with himself, as if to say, I'm that king. And actually, if you aren't convinced that's what he's doing, just look onto the punchline in verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man was Jesus' uh, favorite self-designation, favorite way of describing himself. And it just so happened that it was also the name given in the book of Daniel to the king of God's everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, that's who 
I am. The laws of the kingdom, they are my laws. I'm the king. How that answers or addresses the Pharisees' issue is that they're treating the law, they're treating the rules of God's kingdom as if they're an end to themselves, as if they really mean anything without God's king. And all the while, you're ignoring the fact that the ruler, the king, is right in front of you. You're navel-gazing. God's king's here. That's the second thing that they're missing, the second way in which they're being blinded. They're focusing on the rules, and they're missing the ruler. Thirdly and finally, verses 6 to 11, they're reversing the purpose. The rescuer is here. Now, again, we find ourselves on another Sabbath. This time, Jesus is in the synagogue, along with, verse 6, a man with a withered hand. All of which presents the Pharisees with an opportunity. Verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They're after him. Now, in response, Jesus might well try and persuade them again that healing someone doesn't really qualify as work by the letter of the law, at least not by speaking. Or he might even take the man outside so he can heal him in private, away from the prying eyes of the Pharisees. Perhaps the most straightforward thing of all would be just to ignore the man, carry on about his business. And yet instead, what do you make of this? Verse 10, he stands in full view of the synagogue and he heals him. He heals him. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do it in such a public way? Well, the answer comes in verse 9. I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? The point he's making is similar to the two we've already seen, only it takes us a little bit further. This time, it isn't his identity they're mistaking. It's what he came to do. God himself has shown up in human flesh and bone to heal and to save God is for people. And yet you're so blind to the depth of that problem that you're more concerned with scoring spiritual points than with seeing the problem fixed. And in fact, in doing that, you're even making the problem worse. Jesus came as a physician for the sick, and the problem you see is the Pharisees don't think they're sick. Their self-righteous, human-centered religion has given them every reason to think they don't really need a doctor. They're fine as they are, thank you very much. That's what I think is going on. But it is worth asking, what does it have to do with us? Because it all might feel still quite remote from us, not least because we tend to kind of paint the, uh, the Pharisees as kind of pantomime baddies, don't we? They kind of walk around and skulk in dark corners and rub their hands and they plot to do bad things. But we treat them like that at our peril because this is far closer to home than we might think. Perhaps you're here this morning as someone who might think of yourself as a clear Christian. And yet when you're honest, what we see in the Pharisees isn't all that far removed from how we 
approach God. Our action is the ground of our assurance. That may look like any number of things. It might look like our church attendance, maybe less so in today's culture, but it's still a thing. Church attendance is a ground of your assurance. Perhaps how much you give to church, how much of your time you give to church, how often you take communion. That one's probably quite personal to me. I grew up in a context where communion was a weekly thing. How often you take communion? Well, that's a ground of your assurance before God. Those practices can become a ground for making sure that we're right before God. And it is right to say that those things are good things to do when they're done in service of the Lord. But if they're done in service of yourself, if those things are the ground of your spiritual security, Jesus says, you're in danger. Because that self-righteousness, that self-centeredness, well, it might well be blinding you to the thing that God's doing to the thing that you need, the rescue you need. He didn't come for people who think they don't need him and have it all under control themselves. He came for sinners, for sick people, people like you and me. So it certainly does apply to those of us who are maybe more religious outwardly religious, but it's also fair to say that the underlying principle, that principle of failing to recognize our spiritual sickness, it isn't exclusive to religious people. I read about an example of this recently, actually. It happened to a church in another part of the world. The pastor of the church was giving a talk, and it was a talk on Luke 5, actually, and in his talk, he described humanity as being sin-sick. He combined those two phrases together, sinner and sick, and called them sin sick. That was the point he was making. And it's trying to capture what Jesus is talking about in Luke 5. And he was using it to describe the whole of humanity's plight before our holy God. Now, some people listened to a recording of the talk, people who hadn't actually been there on the day, and they were outraged. Outraged that he would say that about people like them. And the pushback was actually extraordinary. Social media, print media. There was even a campaign put on a local authority to prevent the church from meeting. What was behind all of that? Self-righteousness. We don't need a doctor, thank you very much. We're not sick. How dare you tell us that we are? We're fine on our own, thank you very much. What I want to say to you this morning is whether your brand of self-righteousness, if you see any of this in yourself, whether your brand of self-righteousness is a religious one or a completely irreligious one, Jesus says you're in danger because you are not righteous, nor can you make yourself so. We are all spiritually sick, and there is nothing we can do to fix that, religious or not. And yet he's bringing something new. He's come as the bridegroom. He's come as the king. He's come as the healer. And we get a trailer for exactly how you go about doing that. I wonder if you noticed it, verse 35. The bridegroom would be taken away. Taken to a cross. 
to bear the judgment due on sin-sick people, on himself. What Jesus, I think, would have each one of us do, whether super religious or super secular, however self-righteous shows itself in our lives, what he would have us do is turn to him. Turn to him as a sinner, someone in need of forgiveness. Trust in his cross alone for that forgiveness and rejoice. It is news worth rejoicing about. The rescuer has come. The bridegroom has come. The king has come. That's Luke's main purpose and point in these three episodes, I think, to expose and to confront those of us who might be spurning the rescue we so need. But there is one final thread that I'm just going to touch on briefly before we finish, a final implication that arches over all of these episodes, and it's the last heading on your service sheet. Self-righteous, human-made religion is anti-Jesus. Now, we've seen that Jesus is certainly anti-self-righteous religion, That's been pretty clear so far this morning. But in each of these three exchanges, we also see the other side of the same coin. Not only is Jesus anti-self-righteous religion, self-righteous religion is anti-Jesus. One of you noticed that as we worked through the exchanges. There's a growing hostility as we work our way through. In verse 30, Pharisees see Jesus with Levi and his friends, and they grumble. By chapter 6, verse 2, in the second exchange, they're accusing him of doing what's unlawful. Beginning of the third exchange, chapter 6, verse 7, they're looking for reasons to accuse him. And by the end, chapter 6, verse 11, they're furious, plotting to harm him. Self-righteously religious people hate Jesus. And what's more, we're told that that kind of reaction isn't just a one-off. It's to be expected. I kind of glossed over a little bit or skipped over the third parable in the series of three parables in Luke chapter 5. I won't have you skipping around anymore this morning, I promise. If you just look back to that one, though, chapter 5, verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. Once you've tasted self-righteous religion, perhaps because you've experienced the sense of control it gives you, the apparent certainty it seems to give you, well, it's hard to give it up. Now, why does Luke draw our attention to all of that? And I think he is drawing our attention to all of that. Why? Because it can be confusing, can't it? It can be unsettling. Why would people, especially religious people be so hostile to such good news? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that that question. I've got a friend whose father is a minister, Christian minister. He, that's the father, is a very well respected member of his local community. He does a whole lot of good. He's, He's quite an affable guy, an easy guy to get on with. But I remember having a conversation with him about the idea of Jesus bearing the penalty for human sin. And um, he looked at me as I raised the subject. He looked at me as though I had two heads. And he said this. We do things a bit differently in our church than in yours. We don't really talk about things like that. 
and then he moved the conversation on to something else. And it made me wonder, I was a young man at the time, have I got this wrong? I'm only a wee boy. This guy's a proper Christian minister. Well, no. Chapter 5, verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. What Jesus does, the forgiveness he offers, is incompatible with self-righteous, human-centered religion, with religion that refuses to accept our need of a rescue. And so when you speak of our need of forgiveness, our need of a rescuer, our need of a doctor, and of God's provision of just that, well, it's to be expected that even seemingly religious people are going to hate it. They're going to hate it. That doesn't mean that the good news of Jesus isn't credible, because it is. It doesn't mean that it's not true, because it is. And it certainly doesn't mean that it isn't the best news in the world, because it really, really is. Jesus brings new wine, a message of rescue, of restoration, a message for sinners like you and me. Praise God for that rescue. Let's do that together now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the good news of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in our sickness, that in our sin, you sent a doctor. You sent a rescuer. You sent a savior. We ask this morning that you would impress upon all of us just how wonderful that good news is. Our need was great, and you have met it perfectly. And yet we acknowledge, Lord, our tendency towards trying to fill it with other things, trying to grant ourselves assurance in our own religiosity. And we ask you to forgive us for the times we've done that. And Lord, we do ask that for those of us who have trusted in you, who've received your rescue, you would help us to tell other people, even though it might be heard with hostility, it is good news. It's the good news we so need to hear. Would you please help us to grasp that? And so go forth and tell. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.